Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here for episode 313 and part one of our conversation with percussion instructor at St. Olaf College in Minnesota, as well as concertizing percussionist Matt McClung. We'll get to Matt shortly. But first up, Marching Mizzou and Mizzou football. So Mizzou football went into last Saturday's game as a severe underdog versus number one Georgia at home. And they did great for most of the game. We were leading throughout the entire game up until the last four minutes or so because we could not hold off Georgia's offense getting better in the fourth quarter. And we were unable to add onto our lead that we'd had unless our field goal kicker hit very, very long field goals. It was a really tough loss. And i got to be honest, the fans, they did not take it well. It was definitely a challenge getting the band out of our stadium and back to our safe locations when you take on the number one team and then lose. So that was tough. But Marching Mizzou did great. It was a very loud and raucous crowd, and they all stepped up and did their jobs with great aplomb. And the collaboration with the musical theater department for our Broadway show went very well. It's very cool to get to work with David Meyer, our director of audiovisual for the School of Music, along with Dr. Joy Powell, our musical theater professor and her students. Next time. So let's get to our conversation with Matt McClung. I've known Matt for a number of years. He was a frequent contributor to the National Conference on Percussion Pedagogy during his time at Texas A&M Corpus Christi, doing so with a number of amazing chamber music performances. I thought he might be a good guest. Well, I was wrong. He's a great guest, and that's not just because he praises the podcast right off the bat, though I really did appreciate that. Matt's been active as a performer and educator for a number of years. He's currently on the faculty of St. Olaf's College in Minnesota, where he's been teaching percussion along with, and I quote, duties as assigned, which has included teaching theory and, for the previous year, acting as band director. Matt was also of interest to talk to because of his career move. He left a full-time tenured position at Texas A&M Corpus Christi to make the move to Minneapolis to be with his wife, who is a professional violinist. We talk about all of that and making that work. We went long during this conversation, so this interview is being split up into two parts. So this week, on part one, you'll get to hear about Matt's job at St. Olaf, taking over band director duties, getting work in the Minneapolis area, leaving a full-time job, growing up in the Chicago area, and his time as an undergrad at the University of Cincinnati. Next week, on part two, you'll hear the rest. So let's get to it. We recorded this interview over Zoom on September 13th, 2022, and it begins right now. Thrilled to have you on. Looking forward to this. Come yeah, on. me too. I'll say, you know, I listened to a couple of episodes and I'm a fan. Oh, thank you. I really like it. I didn't, I approached listening to a, percussion podcast as more of a homework assignment than a pleasure cruise. I hear you. But 
I, it was a pleasure cruise. Awesome. I was like this because I listen to a lot of podcasts and mm-hmm. um, yeah, I was like, oh, I'm getting to know these people. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Always. And you're, I think I listened to the first one was the Andy Harns, uh, Harnsberger. Yeah. Harnsberger. Yeah. And then you had a great tribute to Bill Russell. Yeah. I think at the end. Yeah. I was like, holy crap. <laughs> I, I just, you know, after hearing you talk about, and I don't, to be honest, I don't care that much about sports one way or the other usually, but I was like, I got to go look this guy up. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm, I'm now a big fan of Bill Russell. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Everyone should be. And Andy as well. But yeah. I was, I was a fan of Andy before. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. All right. Well, a couple things, uh, Matt, before we get started, one is that I do a fair amount of editing on these. So, uh, things ding, uh, if we cut out, um, I may have you restate, um, something. So that's just kind of part of the deal. So yeah, be aware of that. And then, other thing is, I have no idea what this would be, but if something comes up, you don't want to talk about whatever's your way of telling me to stop uh, with the, just just do it. Yeah, yeah, the slow, the slow, oh, no. <laughs> Over an audio podcast, that's going to come across great too. I love it. Yeah. All right, Matt, give me a summation of your percussion responsibilities and activities as they are right now. Uh, this is my, we just started my third year at St. Olaf, which is a liberal arts college about 45 minutes south of the Twin Cities. Maybe the closest parallel that people might know better as percussionists would be Oberlin. Mm-hmm. It's all undergrads. It's a bunch of, they tend to get a bunch of like really interesting people bouncing off each other in a beautiful campus that's a little bit isolated, even though it's not that far from a large city, it's kind of its own environment. And my duties here this year will be back to uh, where I started, which is um, just teaching percussion lessons, coaching percussion ensemble, and uh, teaching percussion techniques. So that's what I started doing when I was hired in 2020. Last year was uh, exceptional in that I was uh, given a bunch more things to do and I was actually full time. Just It just coincidentally happened that way because somebody was taking a sabbatical and uh, I was the cover conductor for the uh, St. Olaf band. And uh, there was another longstanding teacher of music theory and composition and was the conductor of the orchestra. And he decided this last year was his last year and he did not want to teach freshman theory his last year. So I taught freshman theory and those duties brought me up to full time. But generally speaking, I'm one, I'm the head percussion person here. Uh, It's an adjunct position. And there are a couple other teachers teaching with me. Ari, uh, you know, she went to school here and then did her master's at, I think, Boston Conservatory and is back in the area. And she's kind of a mallet slash uh, new music person, formed an ensemble called Tenth Wave and does a lot of uh, funky, cool new music stuff and has been working around the area for that. So she's sort of my co-teacher in the classical realm. And then Phil Hay is our drum set teacher. He's 
um, you know, he's kind of an old school drum set jazz guy and just has been, you know, killing it for decades and has been, you know, teaching here a long time. And so the three of us make up the percussion department at St. Olaf. So last year you just happened to teach enough that they kind of, did they reclassify you for the year? I mean, it's kind of like a weird. I don't know if my title changed because frankly, I do not know my official title now. (laughs) I'm, I'm part-time I'm adjunct. There might be some sort of like visiting lecturer thing attached to my title, but I was kind of surprised because I, I had a conversation with the band conductor in, I don't know if like February or March. Mm -hmm. And he was like, how would you feel about, you know, stepping up on the podium and being the rehearsal conductor? We'd bring in some headliners for the week of the concert and the actual concert itself, but you would work with the band for a few weeks and get them ready. You know, would you be comfortable doing that? And I said, yeah, I would love to do that. Um, Secretly thinking, you know, geez, this is a big band. It's a, it's a, you know, it's the top band at a school that's known at least regionally for their ensembles. Well, frankly, known nationally for their ensembles. Thanks for their massive Christmas concert that happens uh, every year that, you know, used to be broadcast on PBS all the, all over the country. So, so taking over this band, I was like, you know, outwardly, as we do sometimes in our profession outwardly, I was like, yes, I'm your guy. I can do this. It's going to be great. I can't wait. Let me at him. And then there's, you know, the back of the head stuff that's like, oh boy, okay, I can do uh, this. Uh, this is going to be all right. I got this. So that was the big change for me. I mean, I I taught theory before. I've taught. I was music history teacher for I don't know nine or ten years or something at my last job. Uh, I've taught ear training, uh, music appreciation. I'm relatively comfortable, you know, sort of stepping in. I've got a doctorate and that's, I guess, technically what that, what that means is that we can all sort of jump in and teach any kind of, you know, undergraduate level class, but, um, and, and theory was a lot of work, but the, it was the sort of conducting the, the big band, uh, that was like my big exciting challenge last year for sure. Also the emails that come along with, during in the COVID era, conducting a like an eighty-piece ensemble, I couldn't. I mean, you know, you you work with the band, right? With marching band, yeah. With marching band, so you must like there must be a, an impossible flood of emails from. The, I mean, how big is the how big is your band? Well, this year we're we're maxed out. We're three fifty. <laughs> that's, that's as many as we can have. Yeah. So Pete, can you imagine 80 people in a band and all the emails right. that I get that yeah. I got? Well, fortunately, I'm not I don't run that band, but I know that the uh the director of athletic bands, I know she gets she's old, she basically only does email as like <laughs> her job because she has to. <laughs> and I sh- I should have known because I, you know, I had communicated via email with our band director, uh, Tim Marr many times and he always gets right back to me every single time and i just that lodged somewhere in my head of like oh this guy's really good at um responding quickly and efficiently to emails and then i found out why when i took over his job for just a frankly just a few weeks i mean i guess it was probably added up to like you know 14 12 something weeks and i just couldn't believe it every time somebody gets sick every time somebody tests positive for covid every time somebody's roommate test positive for COVID, mm-hmm. all sorts of other sort of problems that come up in the 
world of a you know 18 through 22 year old's life getting emails. Another interesting facet about the ensembles at St. Olaf, they are much more than any institution I know of. It's a concert band and they have, you know, also they have very fine choirs here. They have very two full-sized orchestras, two full-size bands. And it is to an insane degree, it is not music majors. It's just people who did this stuff when they were in high school and they want to continue doing this stuff. And there was always a little bit of that, but I went, you know, at other schools, but like, you know, I went to a conservatory where, you know, it was a very good orchestra and it was filled almost 100% with people who are going to do that for their life's work. Right. And these are all really fine ensembles and they're, they're peopled by, uh, you know, folks who are physics majors and social work majors and mathematics majors. And that's, it's, it was unbelievable to me how many non-music majors are in these ensembles. And then, so you get all these emails like, well, I have a lab this week, so I'm not going to be able to make Thursday's rehearsal, mm -hmm. which is not a thing, you know, that ever happened <laughs> when I was running or participating in any sort of scholastic ensembles. That was not like a big problem. You didn't have a huge contingency of people who were, you know, off like pouring clear liquids from mm -hmm. separate beakers into a I don't know. I don't know. What Clearly, I don't know what goes on in a lab anymore. <laughs> well, th there's a um, there's a list that I have that I keep with me. That's just the class conflicts for the and it's 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 a lit like it's a large list. Right. <laughs> of like course. Days and, and some of them come in 10 minutes late and some people are going to miss the whole rehearsal. And yeah. you just like you just try to have it have the information in one space to look at. Be like, oh, yeah, that person is not supposed to be here. It's yeah. No, I of course I can't I can't complain to you about it, but it was a surprise. But I understand. Way, but yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, swim team and handbell choir yeah. and just unbelievable. You know, I'm going on a college tour because I'm going to graduate school in physics, and I gotta like you know visit the. Blah, blah, blah. We just started lessons this week, and I had lesson uh, yesterday with one of my students who's a physics major, and he spent you know i we had this the typical sort of conversation at the beginning of the semester how was your summer what'd you do yeah. he was working at cern which is this lab yeah. in, in switzerland you know yeah, about yeah, this, yeah. the particle collider right yeah <laughs> the, the thing you read about in like that that makes the news because like people are convinced they're going to end the world at this thing because they're you know it's a ring that's i don't know 20 miles around whatever it is yeah, it's and they're just bashing protons into each other and watching to see what happens. Yeah. Because for a billionth of a second, some particle that's never been seen before, but was predicted by Heisenberg or something, you know, like that was his summer. Yeah. yeah. And they're like, and, what did uh, you do? And you're like, I, I played the drums. Yeah. <laughs> I hit, I hit triangle. We did, uh, you know, I put Carmen. So there was a lot of triangle. There's a lot of triangle in that one. With the sheriff's odd, and I was I was on the the, the table. I hit the yeah, but you got to hit it right at the right time, or else <laughs> CERN. <laughs> yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, it'll, it'll but anyway, it's it's an exciting environment to be around because it's you know it's it's people who are really interesting and have tons of. I I just read a Facebook post of uh, one of the students who graduated this past, I don't know, May or June, and was like sort of 
listing his activities. And it was just unbelievable. It was like water polo, swim team. Um, there, he started some club in like the bio something. I'm going to get all this wrong because I didn't, I just sort of glazed over after a while, but he was, you know, he was a science or mathematics major of some flavor and he was doing all this stuff. He was in band, he was in orchestra, he was in percussion ensemble, he took lessons and he was an improv comedy group. Of course. And he, I was just like this, I would, how exciting it must be to be like an 18, 19 year old kid walking around this campus and just have all these people who are like, oh yeah, I started the blah, blah, blah club. And I, you know, yeah. So like, and you, and you can't be late for your entrance or, um, or it's just going to all going to fall apart. Yeah. You got a, you got a yes. And yeah, that's right. I don't know. I barely, I don't know how you felt. I barely survived my undergrad just doing what my schedule told me to do. You know, it was a, I, I mean, it was a definitely a puzzle, but I def I've enough of the students I've, I've seen their schedules. I'm they're like, I, I at least didn't have to worry about work in the ways that a lot of the students that I have now have to worry about work. Right. And so That's a lot true. of them are, are like super involved and they have a job that they do from like, sometimes it's from like 11 PM to 6 AM, they get an hour of sleep and then they're at an 8 AM class or something. Right. Like that. Yes. And th- there are some here who work, most of the ones who work here, you know, have like on-campus jobs mm-hmm. with whatever in the administration or working with like the recording department and they're setting up mics and stuff like that. Or they're um, in a lab, I'm sure. Or they're working in a lab somewhere, yeah. ensuring our demise. So before I was here, I taught for 12 years at um, Texas A&M University in Corpus Christi. Mm-hmm. And that was also a bit of a culture shock for me. Number one, it's, I mean, Corpus Christi is essentially Northern Mexico. So like culturally it's, you know, that's kind of where you're at. You, you've, it's fantastic tacos and wonderful food, all sorts of stuff going on there. And you're but, on an um, island, right? At, yes, strictly speaking, you're you're on an island. Yeah. One of the things that was very different, I don't know how it was when you went to undergrad, but when I went, you just sort of you left home, you went to the school, and you were there to do, you know, the thing you chose to do as an academic pursuit. That was your job, and you know, of course, people had various other jobs to get spending money, or you know, worked at Subway a few hours a week. But for the most part you're there and you're super hyper-focused. And these kids were, most of them were from the nearby community, had been, you know, sort of born and raised around there. Not, certainly not all, but a lot of those students were. And they're very connected to their family. I left my family behind, you know, honestly. I, I yeah. there are things I miss that I, I regret because I was just, I was six hours away from where I grew up when I went to undergrad and I was busy all day and all night trying to get this degree and get good grades. And I missed out on stuff. And, uh, you know, that was not how people handled it. Uh, A lot of the students handled it at, uh, A&M Corpus and it wasn't, it's not better or worse. It's just different. And it was something that I wasn't used to. And it was like, I got to go pick up my sister from school. Cause my dad's doing the thing. And, um, I, you know, there's so many of those, like my grand, my grandma's sick. Who's going to take her to the doctor? Like I, I had to take her to the doctor. What are you supposed to do? Not take your grandma to the doctor. I was never faced with that. 
Yeah. Not one time in my whole life has anyone ever asked me to take my grandma to the doctor, but they were, you know, there were just so many familial obligations. And then, as you say, also work stuff going on. You know, I'm, I've tried to get my work schedule going and, you know, tried to cater it so that I can be off on Tuesday nights for percussion ensemble or whatever it was. Yeah. Um, but sometimes they just couldn't do it. And I, I was lucky enough that like my parents were like, we'll get you through undergrad. Don't worry about money, you know, get whatever scholarship and loans we can, but we're going to get you through undergrad. And after that, I was, I was on my own, but I didn't have to, you know, support myself while going to school. So that was, that was the big thing that everybody was doing at my previous job was they were taking care of their families mm -hmm. and they were working and also trying to get a degree. And then here they're trying to get a degree with four different like majors and minors and also, you know, starting a ping pong club or whatever. Mm -hmm. Improv ping pong club, I would think. Improv ping pong club. Patink, yes, and. <laughs> so the the students that go to St. Olaf, are they are they like from literally from everywhere because it's a private institution or is there like a substantial local component? They're from everywhere. I mean, there there are locals here and it's a um it's a Lutheran institution and it's got deep Minnesota roots. And so there's for instance a lot of people in the community who went to St. Olaf and their kids wind up going to St. Olaf. That's a big, it, there's a strong tradition of being an Oli and my dad was an Oli and he graduated. Blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of that, but it does have enough of a reputation that people come from all over. How did you end up there? Because I know that you used to teach at uh, Corpus Christi. So how, how do you even get connected yeah. there? The short answer is I, I got married. I was, like I said, in Corpus Christi for 12 years, and I, I actually, before I went to Corpus, I was at Rice University. That's where my doctorate's from. And while I was in Houston, I think uh, I was still sort of going in and out of Houston. Maybe I had my degree at that time, but I didn't have my full-time job in Corpus yet. Yeah. Uh, I was still doing a lot of stuff in Houston, and I met my future wife, Maureen. She is a violinist and she went to uh, Rice with her quartet and they were sort of kind of in residence there, I guess. We weren't dating at that time. I just met her and we sort of hung out. We had a lot of mutual friends. We played on the same gigs sometimes. And then we kind of got reacquainted many years later and started dating. And at that time, she was the string quartet had moved uh, to New York, more or less. Mm -hmm. It's all sort of complicated, but um, yeah, she was in New York with the string quartet. And so I was flying back and forth mm -hmm. uh, and she was flying back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And this and, is, a, she, and she's doing the quartet as a full-time job. Exactly. So she was doing, she was the first violinist of the Enso string quartet for, I think it wound up being 17 years. They, yeah, they were just one of those quartets running around. They had management, they had won some competitions. They were, um, you know, in demand, they got nominated for a Grammy. It was a, yeah, a pretty top level quartet. And, you know, they were, and you got to uh, ride that wave when, when you, when you can too. Yeah. Oh yeah. And it's, it is like a wave. It's kind of this weird, you know, to talk to her sometimes and, and find out what, 
you know, sometimes everything was just being thrown at them. And then sometimes they, you know, have a program and the, their management and we'd be like, well, this isn't really selling. And you guys, she was also a little bit sort of, you know, they trained with kind of old school, a lot of old school, famous quartet people. And now the management is telling them like, you got to get on Instagram, you got to get on Facebook, you got to get on social media, you got to like promote yourself. And this is not a thing that the Budapest string quartet was worried about. This is not, you know what I mean? Yeah. So it like the landscape was kind of changing. And also there was a bit of a, a recession in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And a lot of arts organizations, it sounds quaint to talk about it now with the current situation, but at that time, a lot of things kind of got scaled back or shut down. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she was in New York uh, and then she basically left the quartet and joined the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. Hmm. So there was one year of overlap. She did a one year with the SPCO while serving her last year with the quartet. And that was a bit of a nightmare, as you can imagine, like playing essentially full-time with two different ensembles, two different types of ensembles. In two different parts of the country. (laughs) And being in a quartet means it's not even two different parts of the country because SPCO is in Twin Cities and the quartet is either in New York or everywhere else. You know, they're flying to Virginia, they're flying to California, they're whatever. So yeah, that was, I can't believe she did that for a year. Um, Anyway, then she relocated to St. Paul, sort of settled in and this is a great job for her. And we got married and we just, I did the dreaded terrifying thing that we are sometimes called upon to do, which is, okay, I'm going to move. I'm going to give up my, I was tenured. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to quit my job and I don't have another job in place and I'm just going to move. And I had, I don't know where exactly you would uh, draw the line. I was, I was freelancing as well as a full-time college instructor. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, but as a full-time college instructor, you can only say yes so many times to gigs before you have to be like, you know what, I should probably be around for a solid 75 to 80% of cl- when the class meets, you know? Or yeah, yeah, absolutely. I remember at some point calling a colleague of mine and being like, how important is it on a scale from one to 10 that I be at my students' senior recital? I mean, that's that's a big one, right? That, <laughs> because there was this thing and like, yeah. you know, I was like, oh, I really want to say yes to this thing. But I tried to get this kid. You know, I asked the kid. I was like, so we're locked to this date. He's like, my parents have plane tickets. I was like, okay, we're not going to move your recital. It's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. And then, yeah, my colleague was like, that's eh, kind of a big, that's that's one you want to be there for. So I, you know, I, I turned down a fair amount of work to fulfill my college duties, which is as it should be. When I moved to the Twin Cities, the plan was just that I was going to perform more and teach less. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I had already started subbing with the SPCO a fair amount before I moved. Mm -hmm. And I was familiar with... Because because your wife was there? Yeah, because my wife was there. I submitted, you know, you have to submit like your resume to the personnel manager and, um, but... 
one thing that was working for me was I'd been the principal percussionist slash timpanist of Rocco, which is a chamber orchestra based in Houston. Okay. SPCO is aware of Rocco. You know, they've looked at like doing projects together and they under, you know, um, and Maureen was a, uh, is a member of Rocco. So they're, they were sort of on the radar. So I wasn't walking in and handing them my resume and saying, you know, I, let me hit your timpani. Like they knew that I was a established chamber orchestra person. It didn't hurt that my wife was in the band. Um, but they, <laughs> yeah, they're picky. Like I had to, yeah, I had to kind of bring it, but anyway, I, I had already started something with them and I was familiar with the, the people a little bit um, at Minnesota Orchestra. And this is while you're still teaching at Corpus Christi. Right. So I was, that was another thing where like I was missing, I would miss like, you know, I'd try and teach all day Monday and then fly Monday night and rehearse Tuesday through Friday, play concerts Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and take the Sunday evening flight, two flights yeah. And get back to Corpus. And I was pretty familiar with that flight schedule and knew how to get the. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was flying back and forth and in conversation with the people in Minnesota Orchestra. And then when I finally made the move, you know, I started playing a little bit in Minnesota Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been super fun. Those two orchestras, because they're completely different animals. They're within 10 miles of each other. Mm-hmm. And they're both very fine ensembles like I, f- I feel lucky to get to play with both of those and the fact that they're completely different animals right next to each other it speaks highly of the community of the twin cities that it can yeah. support an opera company a thriving theater scene a great like sort of indie rock kind of scene mm-hmm. and those two full-time orchestras yeah anyway i figured i could hopefully get enough income to at least somewhat contribute <laughs> Sure. to uh, my marital situation. I was like, honey, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to move to where you are and we're going to live in the same place. And that's going to be great, but I'm not going to make as much money as I used to. Mm-hmm. And we're just going to have to like figure all that out. And um, she was like, yeah, I don't care. That's fine. She's like, come here and, you know, play with the orchestras and it's going to be fine. And you can, or she, she didn't care. She just yeah. thought we should probably live in the same zip code, which I agreed and has worked out great. Although I will say that st- moving and starting a freelance career as an orchestral musician right before a global pandemic is going to, um, I compare it to like the beginning of 1929 going, you know, this stock market thing everybody's talking about is really going gangbusters. And uh, I feel like I, I should go ahead and take our life savings and sort of see if I can double it on the uh, on the market. Everybody... Yeah. So, you know, I started working with SPCO in Minork and it was going well. And then everything shuttered to a halt like it did for all of us. Yeah. So you were not yet affiliated with the college and teaching there. Right. Exactly. So that my predecessor, uh, Dave Hagedorn, who taught here for decades, he was uh, leaving. So I I think, I don't know if I knew when I moved or I was told that that was a possibility that there was somebody at some college that I wasn't super duper familiar with at that time, uh, that that was a, you know, that was a possible job opening, but he was 
an adjunct as well. He was kind of a full-time adjunct. They kept sort of adding to his duties until he became, but he was never like a, a tenured professor. He just had so many things going on that he wound up making a full-time existence out of it. And so he left and I happened to know a couple of people on the faculty here. And I think we started talking about maybe an interview and coming in to teach a masterclass or something like that. And those conversations started right around probably January, February of 2020. Mm. (laughs) And then everything kind of shut down. And I think I sent an email in like March or April and said, Hey, St. Olaf, uh, I don't, I, I, I realize you've probably got a lot going on lately. Mm -hmm. Shifting to whatever you guys are doing right now, but I'm still interested in in the position. Mm -hmm. And we wound up doing a Zoom interview. And now I'm the percussion teacher at St. Olaf. And I started in the fall of 2020, which was, for all of us, I'm sure, anybody teaching in a university, it was a nightmare to try and navigate. Like, at that time, we didn't know. Now, I think the science is in, and it's very unlikely that you get COVID by touching a surface that someone else touched who had COVID like that just doesn't, it doesn't seem to spread that way, but we didn't know that right at the time and be wiped down all the time. And right. And we're trying to figure out how to have ensembles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And like, you know, what do you do? We're not, you're going to give everybody their own bass drum. Right. Like, what are you, how are you going to work that out? Are you not going to share any mallets? Are you just going to make everybody hose themselves off in a, like a hazmat, sort of scenario afterwards that we looked at like the UV light thing that we would maybe, yeah. you know, like try and figure out that whole situation or what kind of policy to institute with practice rooms and how we were going to, it was, and it would have been hard enough if I was familiar with how things worked. Right. But I had never, I'd never been inside the music building and I was trying to figure out all this stuff of like what our official policies were going to be. And of course I was working with the administration and, you know, there were a certain number of guidelines already in place because they had to think about that for pianists and they had to think about that for, you know, other people who share instruments. But that was kind of, uh, yeah, a nightmare trying to stay up on all the science, trying to figure out, you know, there were a couple of schools that had early on had sort of figured out policies and had published them so that the rest of us could look at them and say, okay, this is at least what some school is doing. I don't know if it's right. I don't know if it's going to keep our kids safe, but somebody came up with a plan. And and I feel like maybe um, PAS had some early um, offerings in terms of like, you know, people started the, at least the percussion community, if it wasn't, but it might've been like a page on the PAS website at some point, like, what are we all doing? for yeah. COVID. How are we figuring this out? Do we have recommendations for what you should do? Yeah. There was an enormous amount of that in the band world. I could tell you. Like, everybody. Yeah. So what did you, I know what our band did, but what did you guys, did you just spread out on the field and keep everybody six feet apart and put like mm-hmm. any hose over the tuba bell? Yes. Or? At yeah. All of that we had, um, and we still use uh, the covers for the sousaphones uh, that we've, that we've been using, but Oh, well, we got new ones, but, but yeah, every wind instrument had a, had a, a cover of some sort and everyone was masked unless, unless they were playing, in which case 
they had like a little slit that they put so that yep. their their they could fit their instrument in. And yeah, and and six feet apart. And we at the games we could only have a third of the band at, at a time. So we had to do like some type of rotation system. And um yeah, it was it was a hassle. And then the 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 people who were inside had to do flex band arrangements. They had to sit six feet apart. They could only have they tended to have half the ensemble, if that, uh, in the rooms, um, you know, all of those things. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going to be like talking about parachute pants. You know what I mean? We're all going to like, oh, yeah. Back might in the actually, day. It might be fonder talking about parachute pants, which is a very sad. Situation. Well, I don't know. Did you ever try wearing those things like the zippers? Just try and sit down on like a. No. <laughs> yeah. But you're probably I right. It, look, fortunately. Um. <laughs> Yeah, trust me, I lived through the parachute pants era and it was like chaotic and tragic. <laughs> no, but you know what I mean? I mean, we're all going to just sort of, you know, think about all the stuff we did and all the precautions we took. And yeah. we're going to know in 20 years what worked and what didn't. Mm-hmm. And the fact is, you can't, you, you know, all we can do is you you take whatever information you can find and you get it from the best sources you can yeah. <laughs> and try to ignore the you know, the seemingly sensible people who are like, oh, I just heard that the new variant, like if you walk into a restaurant, you've got it and you're going to die in six weeks or whatever. You know, you try and sort of filter through and just do the best you can and maybe overshoot on the side of caution. Right. And then, you know, we'll, like, like I said, we'll find out in 20 years, well, we shouldn't have bought 600 gallons of hand sanitizer, it turned out. Right, yeah. (laughs) Probably kept us from getting a cold, but... Yeah, 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 but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. It's wild. But I mean, I you know everybody in the percussion teaching community went through something similar. Yeah, of course. Uh, but it was it was just slightly weirder because I didn't know, you know, I didn't know where the band rehearsed. I didn't know how right. often they rehearsed, what the room looked like. I didn't know, you know, what kind of traditions the percussion section had in terms of how they work together. Or who's got their own mallets? What? Mm-hmm. I didn't know any of that stuff. I didn't know the practice room situation. Right. It was a weird start. And it was also a weird start because I, I'm terrible with names normally. Yeah. But with a mask. when I started this job, every, as many people as possible were teaching remotely. So I never saw them. Mm-hmm. And the few people I did see, I was lucky in that I have a, you know, percussion studio to teach in. And they, somebody came in with a, I don't know, uh, some kind of uh, air meter and a measuring tape and said, okay, well, this is big enough. You can have two people in this room for 30 minutes. And then if you air it out, take a break, yeah, then you're fine. Again, in 20 years, maybe we'll find out that that was useless, but I I don't know. That's what we went with at the time. Mm -hmm. So I could teach here, but you know, like the rest of the wind faculty, they were teaching by zoom. And then the people I did see walking around the music school, which was rare, all had masks on. Yeah. So this is my third year teaching here. I have no idea who so many of these people are. I feel terrible. Yeah. But this I don't is know. I, I would guess this is your first year where it's semi-normal. Correct. Yeah. But there are still people who are, you know, masked or like you know, when we had our big sort of Yeah. Yeah. I got to wear mine a lot. Um, the, when (laughs) we had our beginning of the year, like sort of meeting, they looked at the ventilation system and they were like, you know, some people, some people's spouses are immunocompromised. Right. 
Yeah. What are you going to, you know, you want to respect everyone's, you know, you no matter how invincible you may feel about your own health of like, you know, I've been working out, I've been taking vitamin D, I feel good. Even if I get it, it's just going to, well, that's fine. But what if, you know, somebody's spouse is in the hospital right? and, you know, you, you know, everybody knows what all we have to sort of go through to navigate that stuff. But yeah, it's going to be really interesting to write the history. You know, from that, let's actually back up. And Matt, where did you grow up? I grew up in Crystal Lake, Illinois, which is about 50 miles northwest of Chicago. Oh, northwest. So is that mm -hmm. um, how far, how much more in the state is that? <laughs> yeah, you don't go much further north before you hit Wisconsin. Okay. You're probably, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe 20 miles from, I don't know one. No one ever just decides to take a northbound highway straight into Wisconsin. There's not a compelling reason to do that. I don't know if you've been to Wisconsin, but it's basically a moral and cultural wasteland that should be avoided at all costs. So that's what we do. Even Milwaukee? I, I like Milwaukee the couple times I've been there. Yeah, actually, Milwaukee's kind of a fun. Madison is. I've is heard good. Madison's awesome. I, we haven't been there, but I've heard good things about it. Yeah, Madison is like the Austin of the Midwest. I think. <laughs> awesome. um, no, but, Boy, uh, you know. I yeah. kid my Wisconsin friends. I even have family members that have moved to Wisconsin, become Packers fans, uh, well, instead of Bears fans. It's Ooh. yeah, that was a tough place. Anyway, I grew up a Bears fan, just you know, twenty miles south of Wisconsin. Yeah. Um, I don't know, like most of us, I was, uh, you know, kind of a musical kid, and I did a lot through my church program. Mm. So I was in choir from the time I was four until I graduated high school. Um, and I, we, ha we just happened to be at a church with a robust music program. Mm -hmm. And the person who was in charge of it happened to be my godmother. Mm. So there was no, I was happy to be in choir, but there was no getting out of choir. If I had ever made that decision, like maybe I won't be in choir. That was not really an option. Yeah. Yeah. So I was in choir and then I was in school band and then, at some point, and I don't, oh, and I took uh, piano lessons mm. when I was young. Um, my, my older sister was taking piano lessons. And at some point my, I think my mom came home and saw me sitting at the piano playing the pieces that my sister was learning mm -hmm. because I had nothing to do mm -hmm. all day. And I would sit and listen to her practice. So you just kind of hear the same thing over and over again. And I, I had enough of an ear that I could sit on the piano and just start to mm -hmm. poke out like, like I think this is what her left hand is doing more or less. And anyway, they heard that and they were like, we should probably give you some piano lessons. Mm -hmm. So I was in choir and piano lessons. And then I was in drum lessons and in the band. And, uh, and then I was in uh, the McHenry County youth orchestra. And mm -hmm. then I was in the Elgin youth orchestra. And then I was in the Chicago youth symphony. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the time I graduated high school and, oh, and I started uh, taking private lessons with uh, Patsy Dash. Yeah. And uh, she, you know, she was probably, she might've been in her twenties at that time. Mm -hmm. And somebody who was older than me in the Chicago Youth Symphony was taking lessons with Patsy. And mm -hmm. um, this Ingrid was her name. Uh, she was fantastic. And my mom was like, who does that girl study with? And so we 
got in touch with Patsy. And so the, I think the last two years of high school, I studied with Patsy. Mm, awesome. And, you know, she was super kind and enthusiastic, but she was like, look, if you're not like really serious about this sort of thing, you probably don't want to do it as a career or a lifestyle because there, there are lots of talented people out there and they're that, that can't get jobs. And they just, that's yeah. Yeah. And I, I was like, (laughs) it's funny to think of, you know, what 16 year old me thought, how, how, how I thought the world worked, Mm -hmm. but you know, somebody says you can't get a job and I'm instantly, I'm like, well, if I don't have a job, I can't pay money for rent and I won't have a car and I'll have to live under a bridge in a cardboard box and eat out of a dumpster. Mm -hmm. And I didn't want any of that stuff. I didn't want to eat. I didn't think I could live eating out of a dumpster. I wanted a nice car. We didn't have nice cars, but I'd seen them. (laughs) And I didn't need a Mercedes, but I was like, it'd be cool to have like a decent car. It doesn't sound like if I become a percussionist, that's going to be an option. So I tested well in math and science. So I wound up going to the University of Cincinnati uh, and getting an engineering degree. Okay. So that was my childhood and undergrad yeah. experience. So, okay. So back up a sec. When you, you say that the church had a robust music program, what, what kind of church, what was the denomination? Let's start there. So this is a congregationalist church. It's kind of more of a New England tradition, but it's, mm. you know, it's an old school like white platform church with a, it's got a steeple. It doesn't have, you know, um, we Not had hymnals, we had sermons, but yeah. it, it wasn't super hardcore. Like, you know, the, I had, I visited a couple other churches uh, for various reasons when I was young. And so yeah. I, you know, I very serious, the Catholics were very serious about their church and we weren't quite that serious. Yeah. Uh, and then I, at some point I went to, I think a universalist church mm-hmm. and I was like, Oh, these people aren't serious at all. <laughs> We're <laughs> serious compared to them. I'm. I mean, I can't trust my the recollections of a six. You know, however old I was when I went to that church, but I was like, these people are basically talking about a cloud in the sky that they hope brings them a happy day tomorrow. And I, I don't like that. Doesn't sound right. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you know God's a dude wearing a robe, uh, sitting on a. He sits on a cloud, maybe, but right, we yeah. we don't know. The science is questionable about that stuff, but. Yeah, it was kind of a little bit sort of middle of the road. It was more or less a traditional church. You know, you go to, there are a lot of churches now that have, like, the music program is much more like sort of indie rock yeah. style. Or it has like that and. Right. The two different services. You can go to one or you can go to. Yeah. This was a church music program that was like a traditional choir. We wore robes. Mm-hmm very little popular musical styles wove their way into our repertoire. It's not that we didn't do new stuff, but we did um, the quality of the stuff we did was very well regulated. And I didn't realize that until I, until I started doing church gigs as a percussionist Yeah, and, you know, going to churches with different music programs yeah. And some of them were great. I loved, you know, going to church, you know, we 
go and play with a great choir, it's amazing. And they get, you know, good musicians to mm-hmm. back them up. The, those are, those have been some wonderful musical experiences for me. And a but lot of them have, and a lot of them have the equipment already. Like they, you don't have to bring a lot of stuff. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the best too. And this yeah. was, you know, for the size of the community and the size of the church, yeah. what I grew up with was an extra, I mean, we had, I went from Melody Makers Choir to, uh, I may screw up the order, but I think from Carol Choir to Cherub Choir to Chancel Choir to Alleluia Sound. Mm-hmm. So that's five choirs I was in as I graduated from kindergarten on through yeah. high school. And these were, you know, I don't know, it wasn't enormous, but like for the size of our town and for the size of our church that these choirs were 20, 30, 40, 50 people. Yeah. Um, it was a robust program. Yeah. And there was no, I think probably if I were to go back to my hometown church today, there would be some of that style. And then some, I think they also have like, you know, maybe a service going on where somebody's playing bass and somebody's yeah, yeah. playing guitar and it's a little bit more of a modern approach. Yeah. Um, that was, the, that, that was called, I think it's still around, but it, when the Catholic church, when I've, uh, and I was working at it, it was life team was the name of the service. That was the right. Sunday, Sunday evening. And it was, we were, a, we were a rock band basically. Yeah, exactly. It was awesome. I loved it, but it was a very different style. They get some great musicians and you know, often they do. And um, yeah. And, and the gear is like, wow, these people like care about the sound and it's not like, yeah you know, somebody just showing up with an amp and plugging in at a bar. It's like, they, you know, they take that stuff seriously and it's been great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but some of the programs I played gigs at were uh, structured more traditionally in terms of like old school choir, yeah. but the music was kind of a little bit, uh, it just, to me, it felt a lot cheesier. You know, there were more of more moments of like the suspended cymbal swell and then the tinkle, tinkle, tinkle of the mark tree. And we went up a half step and that happened like three times in every single hymn that yeah. we performed. And I just, that, that had not been my experience growing up. And I didn't realize how good the music program was growing up until I went other places and yeah. was uh, a little snobby about the repertoire. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. That was my that was my experience. Mostly mostly as a singer. Yeah, yeah. But you know, if they needed a timpanist, mm-hmm. uh, or I think on Christmas Eve at some point in high school, I started playing a marimba solo mm-hmm. uh on Christmas Eve, and that turned into a tradition that continued on and off until a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Like I would come back most Christmas Eves yeah. and play my little, you know, arrangement of Silent Night or whatever. Mm-hmm. What, so where does the percussion start? Is that like just kind of high school band or middle school band? Is the, And that that's your entry or are you already doing that earlier? Fifth grade, mm-hmm. uh, I started taking percussion lessons. And sometimes this comes up and people ask, you know, how did you get started as a percussionist? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't I don't remember. I don't remember what happened. I think I was probably brought into some room full of band instruments and maybe I just sort of wandered over and said, maybe this, there was a hallmark of my young life, which was that I was unprepared and didn't do what I was supposed to do and wasn't aware of what everybody else was aware of. Mm -hmm. There might've, so it might've been that I was supposed to go to this room and I just kind of blew it off and was hanging out with my friends and they were like, 
Matt, you forgot you got to go pick a band instrument. And I went there and the only thing that was left was a tuba and a snare drum. And I picked snare drum. Mm. I don't remember that happening, but it seems like there's a pretty good chance that I wound up being a percussionist, at least in part, because I goofed up <laughs> and I got what, you know, they didn't know what to do with me because everybody else had already showed up to pick up the trumpet and the trombone and the flute. And this is what was left. Mm-hmm. It's it's possible. Anyway, I know it was, you know, I was in fifth grade band. I had a few lessons with the uh, band director, uh, Sue Phillips. And after that, I got a private teacher. And, uh, you know, shortly after that, there's, uh, there's the band at my elementary school. And then the junior junior high is, you know, a couple miles down the road and they've got some bands and they wound up. I remember early on, it must've been in, I guess by the time I was in sixth grade, me and two horn players would get on a bus, a full-sized school bus, mm-hmm. and they would drive us to rehearsal at the junior high to uh, play in the band with a bunch of junior high kids. And that was just like they just told me, yeah, your band is going to be down there. And that's, you know, at a certain time, three days a week or whatever it was, you're going to get on this bus and go. Yeah. It didn't seem unusual at the time. It was just what I was doing. I guess I kind of noticed that there weren't a lot of a lot of people on the bus because I had I was in choir because I was taking piano lessons from, you know, third grade or whatever. Yeah, I was probably a little bit further along than a, a lot of the kids who started from scratch at fifth grade. So I don't wow. like to brag, but I was kind of a rock star of the sixth grade band scenario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think I had some some similar employee. I, I know I know what that situation's like, Matt. Is what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, it's fine. It's nobody cares. And <laughs> what was your kind of high school did you experience? Did you were you doing a lot of marching band? Was it just like solely concert, or what was the situation? Zero marching. So <laughs> early on, I don't know. I think somebody. T- uh, I was such a dumb kid. Somebody at some point told me that the band program in at our high school used to be good and was now not as good. Mm-hmm. There was something called the Heraldry Guard, which was in existence in, I think, like the 70s and 80s. Okay. Um, uh, and that used to be sort of a big band program, and it was at least somewhat affiliated with that high school, I think. Yeah. And it, it had dwindled from its glory days and... Uh, so I think uh, at some point we just decided I was going to do other stuff rather than be in high school band. It wasn't necessarily a, it was a small town. It was a small high school. It wasn't a very robust band program. Yeah. And so I started playing in youth orchestras. And by the time I was a sophomore, I started playing with the Chicago youth symphony. And my parents were just like, look, you know, you've got this activity and just, I was not, I was, I was staying out of trouble. So mm-hmm. they were like very supportive of what I was doing. Cause they, they were just, you know, imagine all the activities I could have been up to as a high school kid sure. that I just didn't have time for because I was in handbell choir and I was in <laughs> regular choir and I was, you know, I was on the tennis team or whatever. And I kept at least halfway decent grades in high school. And I was playing with, uh, a youth orchestra. So they just kind of, they said, yeah, you're fine. You don't have to do the other stuff. 
I think at some point I, I played in the high school jazz band maybe. And I think that just was because it fit into my schedule and because the youth orchestra officially had a policy that they encouraged people to participate in their, they didn't want to be the thing that happens instead of people participating in their school band. So they were like, yeah, no, no, no. We encourage you to participate in some way in your school music program. So I think when maybe I was a junior or something, I was in the uh, jazz band, but I, (laughs) I could read notes and there were, you know, there's like five, six kids in the back of the band room who all own drumsticks Mm-hmm. And they would swap in and out playing drum kit, yeah, yeah. but I was the only one who could actually read notes. And so they would either have me play vibes or I think at some point they didn't have a bass player. So they just set up a little mini keyboard bass for mm-hmm. me. And I, yeah, I learned, you know, how to, re- well, if it's, if it's a D major seventh chord, I don't know exactly what that means, but I think there's a D in it. <laughs> and <laughs> so I was just exactly. like D, 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 G, G. Like that was me yeah. rocking out with the, high school band program. Yeah. 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 No, I, I hear you. That's, that's great. Um, with the youth symphony and when you start taking from, from Patsy, is there a, an idea of what you should have gear wise or are they providing some of that? How did that work? This is something that's plagued me my entire life, but I'm, I'm always seem to be behind the curve gear wise Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, I have distinct memories of going to basically, I think I auditioned for the Chicago Youth Symphony when I was a freshman mm-hmm. and didn't get in, nor should I have. And then um, at some point I called back to audition like the neg- my mom was kind of nagging me. And, you know, she we lived in the suburbs, but uh, she worked in downtown Chicago and she kind of I think was a little bit snobby about things that were happening in Chicago versus things that were happening in Crystal Lake, Illinois. So she was like, I think if you can get into the Chicago Youth Symphony, that's probably better than, you know, whatever else is going on in the burbs. So she probably pushed me to that. And I probably called and said, I would like to schedule an audition. And, and they, it turns out they were like one person short in their section. Mm. So they were like, they were like, come to, I, I think this call happened on a Friday and they were like, come, come tomorrow mm-hmm. and you'll play an audition at like eight 30. And if it works out, you're going to go to a sectional at nine o'clock with, uh, Oh God. One of the members of the Chicago symphony, I went in and I happened to be working on, I don't know, some Bach piece or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was pre Patsy dash. And I just sort of played my little thing and they were like, yeah. So I went and we were doing like Hoedown and Buckaroo Holiday and uh, Barber Symphony Number no. 1 and I don't know, maybe uh, American in Paris or something like this. Yeah. Um, and I just walked into the room and I, I'm sure I had one pair of drum set sticks and that was my collection. Yeah. And, you know, I'm looking around and there's these kids who are like kind of, you, you know, Ingrid was there and she wound up going to Eastman and like these other kids were pretty serious and they knew what was going on and I had no idea what was going on. Yeah. And so I just like, I, I walked out of that experience. They were like, okay, welcome to the orchestra. I was clearly the worst person in that little room by far. And, you know, I walked out of there and I was like, mom, we got to (laughs) get, we got to get me some sticks and mallets, (laughs) but nobody knew 
I, I just knew that I didn't have enough. So we went to the player's bench, which was the local guitar shop in Crystal Lake, Illinois. And I was yeah. like, I think I need, you know, xylophone beaters and maybe some timpani mallets. And uh, so, of course, you know, I got whatever they had. Yeah. And I was like, I think I need a, I think I need a tambourine. And I, I don't know how I got, I got like a Von Kraft, like not the worst tambourine ever, mm-hmm. but maybe that, oh, you know what? I bet that was later. I bet I got like whatever sort of rock tambourine they had. So I showed up, I'm sure I was very proud the next week and showed up with my new gear. Yeah. Yeah. And all the other kids were like, this is not, you know, we're also dumb teenagers, but we at least know that you're by far the dumbest teenager in this room. That's not, you can't, there's no way you're going to play, you know, Aaron Copeland on that tambourine with an orchestra. You're just not. So it attaches to the hi-hat. Don't you? Yeah. I was like, it's got this hole in here and you can, right. Um, (laughs) So I think one of them, uh, maybe took pity on me and we went to a, a shop in Chicago and I got a Von Kraft tambourine that I still have. Nice. And then I started studying with Patsy Dash and she was like, maybe let's get you some real timpani mallets and some real snare drum sticks to start off with. And yeah. And books that were they having, was she having you buy all the, the lit? Yeah, I think I got, what did I get? I probably got the Payson snare drum book and maybe like the Goldenberg. Yeah. Um, so I was doing that stuff. And then I also went to University of Illinois, had a summer camp mm. and they had a one week percussion summer camp. And I went to that yeah. a few summers and then wound up doing, um, you know, learning a certain amount from, I think Fred Fairchild was the guy who was running that at the time. This was before, you know, obviously before um, Bill was there. Yeah. Um, but between those two sources, I sort of, a little bit of useful knowledge leaked into my, my hard head about like Mm -hmm. the gear situation, but I'm sure I went like almost every college freshman. I know I'm pretty sure I showed up in Cincinnati with like a few pairs of ganky mallets that had been stolen from my high school band. Right. (laughs) But I was like, no one in, I never saw anyone else play marimba my whole time in the high school band room. And I was like, I'm taking these. They're just going to sit here in this drawer forever. Yeah. They're from the sixties. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so those were my marimba mallets for the first couple of months that I was in school. And like I said, I was an engineering major. So the demands on me from the music department there at Cincinnati were minimal. <laughs> You're going to this for not a music degree. Right. And you've, you finished that degree. Yep. In engineering. I have a degree in material science and engineering from the University of Cincinnati. Wow, that's amazing. I think I wound up on the dean's list a couple of times. It was, yeah, it's amazing to me too. (laughs) Every now and then I go back and, you know, I've still got like a box of spiral bound notebooks Mm -hmm. from my college years that's under a bed somewhere in my mom's house or something. And like once a decade, I'll look at these things and it's, you know, uh, I might as well be trying to read like Aramaic or something. Course, like yeah. I'm just, I'm like, I have no idea what any of this means. It, and I'm it's sure all in it, your handwriting somehow. Yeah. It's all in my handwriting. <laughs> and you know, there's funny little notes on the side, like little sort of me not paying attention, writing little goofy notes along right, the right. margins. Yeah. But the all, most of what I remember from my engineering school was just equation after equation being written on a chalkboard and me writing it down 
And maybe sometimes I sort of got the general idea of what the, all this stuff meant, but for the most part, and certainly now I go back and look at them, it's a total mystery. I'm sure these are very important equations that yes. we should all be familiar with, but, <laughs> right. you know, and for, you know, years afterwards, I could still sort of, I could remember a few things. I could mm -hmm. remember what all the variables stood yeah. for, you know, yeah. I knew what, theta was an angle and delta was changed. And I remembered the melting point of copper and all this kind of stuff. And I could read a phase diagram and I, I would have been fine as an engineer, but I wouldn't have been a particularly good engineer. Mm -hmm. And the world is a safer place <laughs> now that I am not. <laughs> I can assure you of that. Well, you, you, it doesn't sound like you would have been motivated to be good at it, maybe. <laughs> I, you know, like a lot of us, I, the, the thing that would have motivated me was I would have looked around and discovered that I was the worst person in the room at something. And I do not like that feeling. Yeah. That's what was so great about the uh, the Chicago Youth Symphony mm -hmm. was, oh, I was so the worst person in the room, like by a lot, like right. a lot. My wife gets down on me sometimes because I, I sort of denigrate myself and I, mm -hmm. I mostly out of humor, I make fun of myself. Um, and sometimes, you know, I'm being serious, but usually I'm not being serious. It's just a little joke. But I'm being absolutely serious when I say I was one of the worst musicians in this room of like 80, 90 people mm -hmm. just because I didn't have the experience. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I, I had some talent or knack or whatever. Um, but I didn't, I didn't know. I hadn't spent any time learning about orchestra music. I didn't, I didn't know up until that point, I didn't have any like sort of serious classical teachers. So, yeah. but that was such a great learning experience because I looked around and I was like, geez, I got to figure this out because I do not like, you know, I got, I kept getting called out by the conductor cause I was doing dumb stuff yeah, yeah. and he was trying to put this thing together. And I was stopping the whole orchestra from being any good at all because I was like obstructing things with whatever, how I was playing cymbals or snare drum or whatever I was doing wasn't fitting in. It, it may not have been as bad as I'm remembering it, but I just remember that sort of burning feeling of the blood sort of rising up through my face and into my forehead as somebody was like, uh, what are you doing? And the whole, you know, the whole orchestra, half the violin section turns around and looks at me and I'm just like, and it's, you know, I'm a teenager in a room full of teenagers right, yeah. and I'm just barely hanging on socially. And I, the last thing I want is a bunch of people going, who's the doofus in the back? Mm -hmm. All of which is to say that, you know, that's what motivates me to learn as much as anything else, or it certainly did back then. And that's how I would have been an okay engineer is I would have looked around and I would have said, I don't really know what's going on, but that guy seems to know what's going on. So I'm going to ask that guy a bunch of questions until I feel like I'm not the doofus in the room. Well, you have the problem in the orchestra of, of the string players, like not really knowing that you exist. And then they look back, you're like, oh, right, right. Yeah. And then they turn back around. They're like, there's stuff I don't know what's yeah they have no they have no idea and that's how we want it if the if the orchestra knows exactly what you're doing it's probably because you've screwed something up and somebody has turned around and said why are you doing that with the widget of phone or whatever and right yeah exactly and they were like what the heck's a widget of phone and that's how they learn what a widget of phone is is because right. the conductor yelled at the widget of phone player yeah yeah that's that's how it works yeah. text for us all I suppose yeah and when you're doing your undergrad how much 
music playing are you doing? Are you are you like completely walled off from it? And it's like four years, you're not doing that much. I did as much as I could. When I started, one thing that was working in my favor was that I had taken some AP classes mm-hmm. in high school. So I tested out of some calculus and I tested out of some chemistry, I think. So my schedule was pretty light. Mm-hmm. Also, I didn't know anybody. I didn't go with friends to University of Cincinnati. No one I knew from my high school went to the University of Cincinnati in a different state. Mm -hmm. You know, it was out of state tuition and it was just, it was not a logical choice. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had no social life and not that many academic constraints at that point. And so I just wandered into uh, well, and also Patsy Dash had done, I don't know if she did her whole master's or like a year of her master's at Cincinnati Conservatory yeah. at CCM. So I had a little bit of a connection. And so I just kind of wandered into the music building and made my way to the percussion department and introduced myself to, um, it was it was a weird time. So the the faculty at that time would have been the percussion group Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. And that's a trio. And at that time it was Jim Cully, Alan Adi and Ben Toth. Mm. That was a crazy year. And I think both Alan Adi and Jim Cully were on some version of a sabbatical at that time. And so I think my very first, they weren't on semesters at that time. They were on quarters. My very first quarter, Ben Toth was doing the teaching for all three of them. Yeah. He was wow. like running everything. Yeah. And so he was not super receptive. He was very nice, mm-hmm. but I walked into his office and I was like, do you want another student? Cause I'm in the engineering department, but uh, you know, I played drums in, in high school and I would like to take some lessons. So he um, put me with a graduate student and I took lessons with a graduate student. I didn't have a key to the practice rooms. So I had to, uh, how it worked was I would go to the music school. And if another percussionist was practicing there, I would knock on their door and I would say, could you let me into this room next door? And they would, they would always do it. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually I got to know all of the percussionists in the department. There's probably 20 kids in the department yeah. or so. And they all knew me as the guy who seemed to practice a fair amount considering he didn't have a key. <laughs> Not yeah. sure what he was doing. Right. Um, and interestingly, the teacher, the graduate student that they uh, gave me to uh, was Heather Berenger. And she was there for my first quarter. And then she joined the group Zeitgeist, which is a new music ensemble based in the Twin Cities. Mm. So I saw her in the fall of 1990. And then not again until a few years ago, I moved to the Twin Cities and just kind of went to a Zeitgeist concert. And I was like, you probably don't remember me. So either she remembered me or she was polite enough to you know anyway hey right hey great no oh yeah great to see you again how are things been like five 35 years 30 something yeah no it's great that anyway um so yeah i just started participating i I, and like i said i had some spare time because i had tested out of some classes Mm -hmm. um and didn't have a social life so i i wound up practicing a fair amount my first year. And after that first year, you know, I made friends in the percussion 
department. And so I just started, I, I was there all the time. Yeah. And some of them were like, I think you should probably like study with a, like with one of the professors. Yeah. Like you should probably ask one of them and they'd probably be willing to take you on. And so I did that and it was agreed that Jim Cully would probably be the, the, the best choice for me after talking to everybody. They were like, you know, he's, he's very good and he's cool. Like he's a cool guy and he's, he's totally down with whatever it is you're doing that we don't fully understand. So I did, I, you know, I played like uh dream of the cherry blossoms yeah. for Jim Cully poorly. I'm sure I learned it on a four octave. So I just, you know, I, basically, I think I probably just learned it an octave up or something like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so it must've been a little weird for him to hear, but sure. Um, he was like, yeah, okay. So I, for the next four years, uh, as an engineering student, I studied with Jim Cully and then they started, you know, you need an extra person for a percussion ensemble. And I was around and willing and didn't completely drop the ball. Yeah. Once again, I, you know, anytime you stick me in a room, I'm going to start to like try and figure out how to not be the worst person in that room. Yeah. And that winds up being a, a useful instinct to have. So they started putting me in, you know, percussion ensemble pieces every now and then like maybe the band would need one extra person. And so I would, you know, come in and play with the band. There was one time where the orchestra was about to do uh candide and they, they had, they had a certain number of players and, you know, it gets now it's, we've all done candide a million times, but you know, when you're a teenager or whatever, it's hectic. You don't know the, the, the tune very well. And there's, you know, people like hitting the glockenspiel, dropping the thing, hitting the triangle, picking up the symbols, blah, blah, blah. And they were like, we need one more person. And it's, you know, two days before the concert, we need somebody to play the, you know, the dress rehearsal and the concert. And I played Candide in my youth orchestra. And when you play an orchestra piece in a youth orchestra, you rehearse it for like four months. Right. And by the time you're at the concert, you have that piece memorized. So I was like, put me in coach. Yeah. And I, I was literally in the room where they were like, talking about it not even looking at me they were like we need one more person to step in and play like i don't know triangle and three bass drum notes in yeah. candide and <laughs> i think it was jim cully who was like yeah but who the hell is going to be willing to like bring a tuxedo show up for the like it was just a crap job that no one wanted <laughs> and i was like oh please please they put me in and yeah so i started getting more and more useful and was became a regular part of percussion ensemble, became a regular part of the steel drum band, which maybe Ben Toth ran initially. And then I think a couple of years after I started there, uh, he left and Rusty Burge became mm -hmm. the third member of the trio and Rusty ran the steel drum band and he put, put me in and I, you know, I, I was a, I, I had done that at the high school camp I did at university of Illinois we did a little steel drum stuff. And then I was part of a steel drum band at the Elgin community college. It was, you know, one more sort of when I was in high school, mm -hmm. um, Elgin's, I don't know, you know, 20 miles or something away from Crystal Lake. And that, uh, was just sort of another weird high school activity that I did. And so I, I had, I was a little bit useful to the steel drum band, a little bit useful to the percussion ensemble and occasionally useful to some of the larger ensembles. So even though I wasn't a, a major, I hung out there all the time. 
those were my friends with the music school people. Um, they all thought I was weird because I was an engineer, but I, you know, like sometimes they had to, people assumed I was a music major and they had to be set straight. So I was a, a little bit of an odd bird because yeah. I was the only person doing that. And then I'm sure the engineering school people thought I was an odd bird because I never hung out. And then eventually, you know, maybe some of them kind of figured out that I was, I had this other life yeah. on the other part of campus. And yeah. I don't know. It's, it's what I felt like doing. And I wound up doing it. I didn't really didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. What, so what does happen after undergrad is over? So I say I don't have a plan, but at some point somebody was like, you know, is this a thing that you're going to do? Cause you kind of play more or less. Eventually I was playing kind of at the level that, you know, when I was a junior, I was kind of playing at the level that the other juniors were yep. playing at. And, and so I thought about it and I thought, I don't want to be 40, which was an, was unimaginably old to me at that time. Yeah. I was thinking way distant future. Imagine I'll be walking with a cane and eating oatmeal at the age of 40. And I don't want to look back at my life and, and regret not at least exploring it a little bit. So I thought, what if I get a master's degree in percussion? I mean, my first thought was, what if I go back and get like a second undergrad undergrad? And I, you know, talked to the, the teachers at CCM and they were like, you could probably with a little bit of work, you could probably leave undergrad and, you know, enter a master's program. Sure. So what I ended up doing in consultation with Jim Cully, my teacher was that uh, I would take a year off after undergrad to really kind of practice and get my stuff together. Cause you know, I was, I was pretty good, but I wasn't, um, I, you know, I just wasn't able to, I, I did spend a lot of time <laughs> getting an engineering degree that I, you know, that took up some time that I, I just couldn't practice. So I took a year off, I worked a job and practiced as much as I could and auditioned and wound up getting into the master's program at CCM and getting a, like a, a graduate assistantship. So I got to, you know, free tuition and a little bit of money. And so that was it. And we'll have part two for you with Matt McClung next week. Stay tuned. This week's rave is another chance for me to see the 1976 classic film, All the President's Men, starring Dustin Hoffman, Robert Redford, and Jason Robards as Ben Bradley, and directed by Alan J. Pukula, currently streaming on HBO Max. This is at least the third time I've seen this movie, and I think it's my favorite viewing of it so far. The film is an adaptation of the best-selling nonfiction book by Carl Bernstein and Bob Woodward, played in the film, respectively, by Dustin Hoffman and Robert Redford, about the investigative journalism that they led, along with other newspapers and organizations and reporters, to unveil why there was a break-in at the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate Hotel during the 1972 presidential election. This investigation would eventually lead to the resignation of President Richard Nixon in August of 1974. One of the most interesting and fun aspects of the film is the fact that it is a nearly contemporary account of what had happened. 
all being filmed in the actual locations and showing the interiors of so many spaces as they actually were. It gives you a real sense of what journalism, newspapers, and other things were like in the 1970s, which makes it a nice throwback. But the best part upon rewatching is just how compelling this film is to watch even though it is 46 years old. For one, there is no film score. It is all natural noise and conversation. It goes from point A to point B while showing how things get detoured and messed up. It has real conversations that often interrupt each other or go nowhere. It has battles with management and editors about what to print. It shows how one thread leads to another, and then maybe that's the next step and where you want to go. It shows people screwing up. It shows them fixing their mistakes. And all of these things and the investigative work are done in a very quick and fast two hours and 15 minutes of storytelling. If you're in the mood for a true crime thriller that still holds up after 40 plus years, check out All the President's Men, hopefully again, you will enjoy. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Matt McClung. Until then.